2: Uh, this has been quite a night, Paul. What do you think is happening? Is this is this really Y2K as Rahul suggested? Well, I
3: I think the year is not correct for that. I I <laughs>
2: <laughs> It I'm was 20 man. years after the millennium, right? I'm
3: but yeah, I'm but a country doctor, but somehow I don't feel like the math lines up for me, but I'll I'll believe anything at this point.
2: Right. So this is the curbsiders. This is our I think third COVID cakes episode. We have a great show tonight. Featuring the great Rahul Ganatra and some critical appraisal, our good friend Emmy Okamoto, and of course, our fearless producer, Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Uh, they're going to introduce themselves and they'll be talking in a bit here. But first, Paul, what do we do on this show?
3: It's, it's such a great question. And I think about it a lot. Um, and I could spend <laughs> a lot of time talking about it, uh, which I'm in, totally prepared to do. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge, Um, except this time the experts are us, the experts are we, we have seen the experts, and we are they. So we have the panel that you mentioned that is assembled to talk about just a collection of articles, as we know, talking about COVID, everything is evolving at a almost daily rate. Um, And so we're going to try to keep you as current as possible, knowing full well we'll be completely outdated within a couple of weeks.
2: Right, that's why we have to rush this to air and give us a pass on this one. Uh, it's going to be very lightly edited, <laughs> if at all. This was supposed to be a live show, so forgive our mistakes. And with that, I think we should just get into it. And Rahul, I believe you have some fun animal facts for the audience tonight.
0: I sure do. This feels like an acoustic version, so I'm I'm just doing this kind of off the cuff here. Um, okay, so people know and love llamas. Everyone loves llamas, right? Um wait, is that a thing? <laughs> I kind of thought that llamas were like a beloved uh camelid. Um <laughs> that might just I, be me though. <laughs> sure. I, sure. I
2: invest
4: in several llama farms. Sure. They're on my towels. They have yeah, very pretty, well. pretty eyelids, eyelashes.
0: Right? Okay, so llamas. Um beyond just being cuddly and lovable, uh, llamas might actually hold the keys to uh, solving uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So there was a report published uh, in Cell uh, a couple weeks ago um, that was looking at using uh, llama antibodies against stabilized uh, antigens uh, from the SARS uh, coronavirus. And should I tell you all the things I know about this now, or does anybody want to react to the coolness I, of using llamas? I was just
2: this was as soon as I saw this headline, and i I knew that I had to make you talk about it or not make you. I can't make you do anything, <laughs> but you know force you gently gently ask you to to talk about this, yeah, so so let's get into it,
0: okay. so the brief thing that I know is that llamas uh have kind of a unique feature of their immune system, which is that they are able to generate antibodies against uh, epitopes that are a lot smaller than what human antibodies can target, and they do this because you know humans have a heavy chain and a light chain to their IgG, but llamas just have a really tiny, like what they call a nano binding domain. So. It's a lot smaller than the human IgG. And these researchers uh, in the report that they that was just published about this, basically found that llamas were able to generate neutralizing antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, when they were given um, essentially a vaccine. And the reason this is important is because uh, we have not yet demonstrated the presence of neutralizing antibodies in humans, and so this is really kind of an exciting thing as a therapeutic target. It might be useful for making uh, monoclonal antibodies against the virus in the future.
2: Yeah, and the neutralizing antibody, because I've, I've seen that come up a couple times, so I was trying to read about it, and it, it my understanding of it is that this llama antibody was exciting because it actually the it, as a neutralizing antibody blocks entry into the cell because there's other types of antibodies that can target other parts of the virus but don't necessarily block it from getting into the cell so they could alert the immune system but this can just sh- straight up block entry and that was what was exciting about this and I think the reason they got it done so quickly is because they were already testing it on mars uh, mers and the original SARS-CoV-1 right
0: That's right Maybe also testing on Mars. I haven't heard about that yet. Mars, yeah. Certainly uh, possible. (laughs) Um, I'm
2: sure Elon Musk is involved somehow.
0: (laughs) That's right. Let's hope not. (laughs) I mean, it did have anti uh, neutralizing activity against SARS-1 and MERS, um, uh, which is exciting.
2: Yeah. And this is, I think, still months to years away, probably by any, uh, even if you're an optimist, so I don't, I don't think this is going to get us, get us out of it right now. We'll talk about a little later. We'll talk about some of the exit strategies that have been written about recently. Can Um, I say,
3: so I read the New York times piece because the cell piece um, fried my brain and I just didn't have the, the, the bandwidth for it. And just to Emmy's point, there is an entire sentence devoted to llama eyelashes, which I found like I circled three times with exclamation points next to, because I found that so weird. And now, (laughs) and now here we are.
2: I, are they really known, Emmy? Are they known for their eyelashes? Yeah.
4: Have you seen them before? Everyone I, I see, I think, is a female, and that's just stereotypical. You know, <laughs> they have their fake lashes sure. on. They look they great. Care more. Yeah. Yeah. My and they don't spit as much as camels. So, my,
2: my lovely wife tells me that that my some of my children have very long eyelashes and that that is desirable. And I then remind her that I don't think anyone looks at eyelashes, but I guess I'm wrong. I guess uh, maybe maybe I just don't have have that
3: at least your wife and other llamas apparently
2: (laughs) (laughs) let's so we have a main event tonight which is talking about remdesivir emmy did you want to set this up that up a little bit and and then rahul can get get into it
4: yeah yeah so i think two or three weeks ago um we went over the new england journal piece on remdesivir that was a pretty small case series that had a lot of biases i think i remember selection and ascertainment though I need to review what that means again. And we think that may have shown benefit. Um, And then recently, you know, the government came out with the NIAID study saying that there is clinical benefit, but they won't show us the study. So in the meantime, we really have dug into a a randomized control trial on remdesivir that just came out in the Lancet. So very excited for this one.
0: Great. So... Like Emmy mentioned, you know, we did spend a good portion of a show a couple of weeks ago looking into the New England Journal case series. And because that didn't have a comparison group, we really couldn't make any strong inferences about whether or not remdesivir was going to be any better than placebo in patients with COVID-19. And our conclusion at that show, as it often is, is, well, we need a randomized controlled trial. And fortunately, here we go. Um, We have a randomized trial that was published um, at the end of April in The Lancet. And this is by um, a group of authors out of China, um, uh, led by Dr. Wang, so I'll call this Wang et all. And first things first, I think we should start by just assessing our baseline beliefs about remdesivir. I know people have heard a lot of discussion in the news over the past couple weeks. Is there anything that kind of floats to the top as far as influencing what people are thinking at the moment regarding whether or not this is likely to to be something that's going to benefit patients with COVID-19? I'm curious to
2: see, see what Paul has to say, because I know he spent some time dealing dealing with this virus. It's I've
3: well, I mean, as have we all, but I am. I, and this is, I think, one of the Twitter surveys that you had, too. But I'm just so shell shocked by being wrong or not knowing the answer that I feel like that's now my default setting. So <laughs> I, I feel like any any say that comes out I'm like eh, maybe I don't know. I don't know anything. Nothing seems promising. Everything seems terrible. So that that seems to be like nothing seems to work so far. Um, and I've not seen anything definitively to change my mind up to this point yet. But maybe maybe you'll do that tonight.
0: Well, it is more than okay to start with saying, I don't know what the effect is going to be. As long as we have a sense of kind of where we are, the vantage point that we're starting with, um, uh, that's important for thinking about, you know, whether or not something we read is going to change that. You know, the background for this study, we sort of covered in our show a couple weeks ago. There's currently no effective antivirals for patients with severe COVID-19. Uh, Remdesivir is a nucleotide analog that has broad antiviral activity in vitro against many coronaviruses, and this study is important because it's the first uh, published clinical trial of remdesivir for COVID-19. So the question these researchers were asking is, is remdesivir safe and effective for reducing the time to clinical improvement in patients hospitalized with COVID-19? Uh, this was published on April 29th, and it was funded by the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, so not the manufacturer. This was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled superiority trial. The study population was 237 adults who were hospitalized with uh, PCR-confirmed COVID-19. These were all at 10 hospitals in Wuhan. Um, And the intervention in this study was uh, remdesivir uh, 200 milligrams on the first day, followed by 100 milligrams for a total of a 10-day course of this IV medication uh, in addition to usual care. And the control group was placebo for 10 days in addition to usual care. And I'll just say that patients in both groups were allowed to receive other off-label treatments uh, as long as it was not part of a clinical trial.
2: And that included other antivirals?
0: It did, it included uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, which actually the same group of authors uh, published uh, a well-done randomized controlled trial on separately. Um, Patients could also receive interferon, which is another uh, experimental treatment being investigated, and then things like steroids and antibiotics. So patients in this study were randomized in a two-to-one fashion, uh, two patients getting remdesivir for every one patient getting placebo. Um, and they were stratified by the level of oxygen support that they were requiring at enrollment. Um, nurses assessed patients every day, and uh, swabs for PCR were collected uh, on multiple days until discharge or death.
2: I think it was like eight times. So you got to really shout out to the patients in this that tolerated eight and, and nasopharyngeal swabs. And they collected swabs from uh, multiple locations in the right. body. It could have been rectal too. Like they,
3: <laughs> right. it was not it was not great. No matter what you were getting, it wasn't pleasant. That's right. Um,
4: and what, what was the dropout
1: rate again?
0: <laughs> yeah, these, these patients were champs for for more reasons than one. Yeah. So, in order to be in this study, patients had to have PCR confirmed uh, SARS-CoV-2. They had to have infiltrates on their chest imaging. They had to have uh, an O2 saturation of less than ninety-four on room air, uh, and they all had to be within twelve days of symptom onset. Um, adults with cirrhosis or renal impairment, and pregnant or breastfeeding women, as is common the case, uh, as is commonly the case, were excluded from this trial. Um, the primary outcome in this study was time to clinical improvement from randomization to day 28, and they define that as uh, an improvement of two or more levels on this ordinal scale. And this is basically a one to six scale, ranging from one being, you know. Uh, hospital discharge, um, you know, back to your normal life, and six being death, and then all the levels between that being, you know, different levels of respiratory support from nasal cannula to uh, high flow to intubation, etc. Secondary outcomes, uh, mortality, viral load, adverse events. So the sample size justification in this study we'll just spend a second talking about Um, the authors powered the study uh, to achieve 80% power to detect a six day or greater reduction in time to clinical improvement. Um, And that was assuming that it was going to take 21 days for the placebo group to improve. And that uh, left them with a a sample size needed of 453 patients. Okay. And we'll we'll come back to the importance of this um, as soon as we go through all the data.
2: And you'll, yeah, so if if I had questions about power calculation, would now be the time or you want me to save it for a little later here?
0: Oh man, there's always uh, there's always time for power calculation questions. Uh, what yeah. are you thinking, man?
2: I just I think power calculation is always something that I look to see if they've done one, and then if I see that they've done one, I'm like, okay, well, I'm clearly not smart enough to to critique how well they've done that. These guys seem
3: serious. They did a power calculation. They, <laughs> We're trying to move on.
2: Yeah, I do. It seems like it is a marker of quality, but it seems like it, it is a guess, right? Like you you have to know have some background information and guess and. Is there any, anything that we should look for when people are reporting their power calculations?
0: Yes. So it, you're right. It is a guess. It's an educated guess, but it's a guess nonetheless. And the whole question that you're trying to answer with doing a power calculation, just to put it in English, is how many observations do I need to make in order to see the difference that I expect is going to be there? That's the whole thing. And I will say, in, in my opinion, this is more important when a study is negative or null, meaning you know it didn't show an association, than when it's positive. And the reason for that is if a study is negative, you need to be able to figure out, is it because there really is no association or is it because the study just wasn't powered, meaning they didn't have enough observations or patients to see the effect that they were expecting? So that's, that's my, like, uh, big picture opinion on power calculations is it, I, I think it's more important when a study is negative and the things you should look for in the power calculations are well how big of an effect did they expect to see if it was something that was really really huge you know that's going to take fewer observations and if it's something really small um, and even if authors choose a really big effect size you know you might care about a smaller effect than that if one exists so
1: can I ask a follow up to that? Uh, I'm wondering, because this is obviously a novel virus and we don't have um, a lot of literature previously about what kind of effect sizes we're going to see, does that impact the kind of quality or accuracy of the power calculation?
0: Yes. I mean, the assumptions that go into the power calculation um, are always generally based on you know, what knowledge we have already. And uh, I will say that in the trial of lopinavir, ritonavir, that the same group uh, produced, they powered that study looking for uh, an eight day or greater time to clinical reduction in time to clinical improvement, which is pretty big. And you might argue that a smaller reduction in time to clinical improvement might still be meaningful. So that study was negative. Um, You know, these authors uh, powered this study looking for a smaller reduction. So it it is kind of an iterative process where you you build on uh, information that we already have.
2: Yeah. Cause I, I think, you know, a one day reduction, that's kind of, that's kind of slim. Like if you're the patient, they probably still care, but a 10 day treatment for a one day reduction is, I don't know, but, but anything I'd say three or above, if you're the person treating that patient, if they're better three days sooner, that's, that seems like a big deal. And they're, they're looking for a six day reduction here.
0: That is absolutely right. And there's a bigger question lurking behind what everyone is saying, which we're going to get to when we talk about the NIH trial, which is, are we even studying the right outcome time clinical improvement? So um, let's talk about the results of this study. I think this is a good time to do that. So I'll take you through um, some of the the highlights. So the median age in the study was 65, 60% of participants were male. Um, 70% of patients in both groups had any comorbidity. Okay. And the, the viral load from the, um, upper respiratory swabs, uh, was similar in both groups at baseline. Um, 80% of patients were on nasal cannula at baseline, uh, 15% required high flow or non-invasive ventilation and fewer than 1% of patients were intubated. Okay. Um, it's a good practice to look for imbalances between the two groups in the table one. And the imbalances that really stick out uh, in this study to me are that there was more hypertension, diabetes, coronary disease, uh, and more tachypnea in the remdesivir group at baseline. Okay. And we'll come back to the significance of that. So the median duration of symptoms before enrollment was 10 days. Um, Most patients were also treated with antibiotics. A bunch of them got steroids, roughly two thirds. Um, And, you know, in terms of imbalances regarding treatment, there were more patients with symptoms for greater than 10 days in the, in the remdesivir group, um, and fewer patients in that group got treated with interferon. Okay, so what was the primary outcome? What did these authors find? Well, uh, the uh, time to clinical improvement was 21 days in the remdesivir group versus 23 days in the placebo group, and this uh, corresponded to a hazard ratio of one23 with a confidence interval that crossed one. So a non-significant difference there, 0.87 and 1.75. The secondary outcomes that we uh, are interested in this study, uh, mortality, there was no difference, um, 14 versus 13%, a non-significant difference there. And uh, the percentage of patients who uh, were discharged alive from the hospital, also no different, uh, 61 versus 58%. Um in terms of viral load, we, uh, the, the authors uh, provide data on how quickly patients cleared their viral shedding, and it looks like uh, the viral loads declined at similar rates over time in both groups. And in terms of imbalances there, the remdesivir group did have a higher lower respiratory tract viral load um, at baseline. And then in terms of adverse events, um, overall, they were pretty rare. Um, 12% of patients getting remdesivir had to stop it early due to adverse events compared with only 5% of patients who were getting placebo. So based on all these data, the authors conclude that remdesivir was not associated with any reduction in time to clinical improvement, viral shedding, or mortality in the hospitalized patients with COVID-19. But they do note that the study was underpowered for the primary outcome and that overall serious adverse events were rare. So I'm curious uh, if what people are thinking about, you know, the original uh, question that Matt posed about the significance of power in this study. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the impact of power uh, in a negative study, but does anybody have any thoughts they want to share before we do that?
2: As you said, the fact that they they wanted at least 200 more patients than what they ended up with, I, I believe the reason for that they said was because they sort of, I guess it's good fortune that the number of cases were going down because they were so- starting to get the virus under control. So they stopped enrollment. And so that's why they didn't get enough patients. So They probably didn't capture enough events maybe to see a difference between the two groups and that that was how i read it
0: that is exactly right and that's such a good way to put it in words too is uh they didn't have enough events to to assess if there was any difference based on the assumptions they made about the effect size so you know starting from the standpoint that this was a negative study the question we got to ask is does this mean that remdesivir really has no effect on time to clinical improvement or is that there could be an effect but Due to you know chance or bias, we just didn't find that. So, looking at the impact of chance first, I mean, really, this is all about power. And as you said, Matt, because the outbreak came under control in China, enrollment slowed, and the study was stopped after enrolling uh, only about half of the planned sample size. And so, this is sort of the reason why the study was underpowered for the primary outcome. Um, and I'll just say that, you know, a smaller than planned uh, study size for a superiority trial, it can affect both the accuracy and the precision of the estimate of the treatment. And in the power calculations, the authors say that they were looking for a hazard ratio of for improvement of 1.4. And, you know, like we've already talked about a little bit, if you have fewer observations than what you need based on that assumption, that makes it really unlikely that a smaller effect than what was assumed uh, in the power calculations could reach statistical significance because you would need a larger and much more obvious effect to exist in order to find it. So regarding bias, we talked a little bit about chance already regarding bias. So due to the small size of this study, randomization did not work out perfectly. And there were some imbalances in the baseline characteristics, which suggested that patients in the remdesivir group were sicker and a little farther along in their disease course they had more of the comorbidities that we think matter the diabetes and hypertension and coronary disease or more tachypnea, higher lower tract viral loads and more of them had symptoms for greater than 10 days.
2: Yeah. Emmy for this virus, like, does it make sense to you like that we're giving these like antivirals like 10 days in when like the, it just seems like you would want to give these like earlier. And I, I know that's not probably not practical with, with a IV drug, but.
4: Yeah, yeah, I was su- surprised that, you know, we'd want to be giving it, they're saying with the emergency use as soon as they come in the hospital and they need oxygen and they're sick enough, but here they're getting it 10 days out. And I think, as Rahul was saying, that the even with randomization, we got a group of sicker in the remdesivir. And do you remember when they used to have that third column where they put a p-value for the difference between the the two, which is incorrect, right? Because the whole thing is it was random, but it was show that would show kind of highlight where differences. Um, though the p value wasn't the correct thing to use there.
0: And Emmy, you uh, have made me smile because you brought up a, a favorite point of mine, which is you know you don't need any number to tell you if uh, imbalances at baseline uh, are uh, quote unquote important or significant, because that the, the if, random, if the study was randomized, then the likelihood that those uh, imbalances are due to chance should be 100%. So any differences that you see in uh, uh, characteristics in the baseline group, if you think that they could matter clinically, then that's, that's a really important observation. So you don't need a number to tell you that, you just need your, your clinical intuition. Okay, so we talked about the impact of chance in this study. Let's just talk a little bit about the impact of bias. So I think people have a sense of how if patients in one group are sicker than the other group, that could create a bias, right? Um, If patients in the remdesivir group really were sicker and farther along, even if there are benefits of remdesivir, this could attenuate them, and this could make it more likely that you could get a false negative result. And for those reasons, it's not that surprising that there were no reductions in mortality or viral shedding shown in this study either. And Paul, I know that you had a, uh, um, a point that you wanted to make about the idea of um, how they handled uh, deaths in this study. Do you want to say anything about that?
3: Sure. No, you're too kind because it's not a point I wanted to make. This is me <laughs> actually not understanding something. Um, so I'll let you make the point. But they they brought up this this concept of right censoring, which I feel like I've heard you mention before, but I feel it's a little bit of a, a slippery concept for me. So um, I'll read the sentence that kind of stuck out to me. And you can let me know if I should have worried about it or not. But they said time to clinical improvement was assessed after all patients had reached day 28. No clinical improvement at day 28 or death before day 28 were considered as right censored at day 28. So, what what
0: does that mean? And should I care? <laughs> like, so I first of all, I'll just say it makes me so happy to be this deep in the weeds of the methods. This is like <laughs> the most fun thing that we could be doing tonight. Um, <laughs> Okay. So what does it mean to write censor somebody? Well, that when you write censor somebody, that means that they are no longer contributing follow-up time to the study. Okay. So in a study where the outcome is time to an event, patients can contribute different amounts of follow-up time, right? Like what if one patient, you know, gets better after two days and gets discharged? He's only, that patient's only going to contribute two days of follow-up. Whereas somebody who's really sick in the intensive care unit, they might be there for the whole duration of the study. And so, you need a way to account for the different amounts of time that people contribute in follow up. You also need a way to account for what to do when people stop contributing follow up due to competing events like death. Okay. And in this study, with the the ultimate competing event, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And the, the important thing about that, though, is if a patient dies, then they cannot experience the primary outcome of clinical improvement. You guys buy that? Of course. Great. So if a patient has died, we are saying by definition, they cannot experience clinical improvement. So on my, uh, on Twitter, I have, uh, I made up some example, uh, figures to kind of illustrate this problem, uh, in a little bit more detail, but what if, you know, a bunch of patients died early on in the study? Okay. And then, you know, they're not contributing any follow-up time after death. Those patients who are really sick are not going to contribute to the denominator. And so that might Artificially inflate the estimate of the efficacy of the drug because only patients who survive to experience the primary outcome of time to clinical improvement are going to contribute follow up time. So, there's a couple ways to handle this. Uh, these authors chose to do something very conservative, which is to continue contributing follow up time after those patients have died. And the effect of this is to inflate the denominator. And this biases towards a negative result. And I actually would really love it if any listeners who have a more sophisticated understanding of this uh, could tell me if I'm wrong about this. Because, boy, I tell you, a lot of times there's you know I'm reading a paper and I will think this is what I think they meant, but I'm just not sure. And it is entirely possible that there's somebody out there who has got uh, a a more correct interpretation of this. So I, I would welcome you know if anybody wants to to at me on Twitter with that, I would I would love to to hear your opinion. But I think what this means is that the authors, because they needed to find a way to make those sicker patients uh, affect the, the results of the study. So they basically treated patients who died as taking an infinite amount of time to get, reach clinical improvement, if that makes sense.
2: And you, you mentioned the viral load. I've read some things where we think early on the viral load might peak early on in the, in the disease. And these patients are coming in around day 10. So maybe their viral levels weren't that high to begin with, but did they measure that throughout the study? And then was the drop in virus, wasn't the drop in virus similar
0: in both groups, even with, with or without the drug? It, it was, and they did measure this in the study, and they had a, they have a figure in the paper that basically just shows you the decline in the amount of virus that they detected from these swabs over time, Yeah, and the two groups kind of declined at, at more or less exactly the same rate.
2: Yeah, the thing I didn't know how to interpret was like, was the starting level of virus, you know, any cl- was there any clinical significance to that, or were these just patients where you're just detecting dead virus and they're sick because they have an, an immune response. And that's why the drug didn't work because we just gave it at the total wrong time. That is such a
0: good observation. I mean, it, and the, the, the important thing that uh, is embedded in, in what you're asking, Matt, is we actually don't know if viral shedding is a reliable surrogate for, you know, does that mean they're producing infectious virus? Or is that just like the entrails and bits of virus that your immune system has, has killed that are being detected? So we, we actually don't know.
2: Because we've uh, at least, I, well, I can't speak for everybody, but clinically I have seen and, and our hospitals have seen patients where they still have detectable virus. They have no symptoms. It's been weeks. And then we have patients who are still sick and they, they, their, viral, their viral load becomes undetectable like while they're there. And but they're still sick, so it doesn't. It's it's hard for me to interpret what what exactly is going on, and some of these patients in this study. I so I don't know if the drug. Is, so it just makes it hard to understand because if it's supposed to work as an antiviral, but the viral load didn't really change much between the two groups, that's very suspicious to me. But anecdotally, of course, we all heard of patients that have gotten this drug and and did okay under compassionate use. At least I've heard of a couple, but would they have gotten better anyway? We don't know. Because time, time is the main thing that treats this virus for
0: most people. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I'm not a content expert on antiviral. So I don't want to speak out of turn here. But I will yeah. say that, you know, I, I don't know that we know that the what the clinical significance of the viral load uh, from these swab specimens is yet because we don't know if that reflects, you know, ongoing production of infectious virus, or if that's, you know, uh, just fragments of virus that are not going to result in infectious particles.
2: So, so how do you want to wrap up the discussion of this? Did you want to summarize things and, and then we can uh, move on to the next
0: piece? Absolutely. So after reading and appraising this study, I think a reasonable bottom line is this, in this study, remdesivir was not associated with reduced time to clinical improvement in patients hospitalized with COVID-19, but lack of power due to early stopping and some baseline imbalances suggesting the remdesivir group was sicker, both of those things raise the likelihood of a false negative result. So where do we go from here? Well, um, you know, everybody's aware of the FDA issuing the emergency use authorization for remdesivir based on the results of a unpublished, unpublished, uh, trial from the national institutes of allergy and infectious disease. The only things that I'll say about that are most of what I know about that study has come from the fabulous reporting in, uh, stat news, um, around some of the conversations that, uh, have been had at, you know, high levels of leadership regarding decisions here. Um, the primary outcome was changed early on in this study. I actually don't think that that is going to end up being a big deal because the primary outcome was changed to something that's not that different. Um, the study was stopped early due to suggestion of benefit. And the data safety monitoring board had kind of an impossibly hard task here, which is deciding, do we continue the study, getting you know information to know beyond, you know, a reasonable uh, level of certainty, whether or not this is effective or, you know, do we provide a drug to patients um, if there's enough evidence that it seems like it could help them? So there is no easy answer here. Um, This is going to have impacts on how we study this drug going forward. Um, But the things that people should be looking for when details of the, of the NIH trial are published are, um, you know, what was the primary outcome um, is the study positive or negative? And if the study ends up negative for the primary outcome, think about the power calculations. Uh, if the study is positive for the primary outcome, look for sources of chance and bias that uh, could influence that result.
2: All right. Yeah. And and I think they're doing a second arm of that trial too, where they're they're adding the drug barasitinib, which I don't, I don't know what that does. I know it's a, it's a PO drug though, so it's that's better, you know? So, so that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's for a subsequent show.
4: The the one thing that is good about this study was um, there really aren't that many adverse events over placebo. So what was so interesting is even in the placebo, the adverse events they counted were 64% versus 66% in remdesivir. So at least, you know, even if we don't know, it's probably safe to use um, and, and try out for now until we have more data. Yeah.
2: yeah, I agree. Yeah. I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to end the crisis, a 10 day infusion that's, that can't be given to billions of people or hundreds of millions of people. Paul, you're going to say no, it
3: sounds like, and no, and we're still not sure if it works or not. So all that sounds great. It sounds promising and I'm excited to see where it goes.
2: Okay. So we, we have a couple minutes left in the show for some hot takes here. And Sarah, I think you had the first first one.
1: Sure. So um, first of all, apologies for my poor quality video. Uh, I promise I'm not a hologram as much as I may look like one right now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I wanted to talk about the fact that I have been speaking with some neurologists, um, and emergency medicine physicians at one of our cash lack satellite sites. Uh, and they have talked about how there's been a very marked decrease, a very noticeable decrease in the number of stroke patients that are being admitted to their ERs and ICUs. And, uh, I've seen this colleagues from various hospital systems have been talking about this phenomenon, um, and have even crunched some numbers and looked at, uh, this time last year versus since the, um, beginning of the COVID pandemic. So the suggestion is that patients who have stroke symptoms uh, or other cerebrovascular disease symptoms are delaying care. And that's obviously um, a big concern because these are not conditions that you want to delay care for. You know, the time is brain is like a very common refrain. Um, So the AHA, the American Heart Association, has been doing some outreach and PSAs around this issue, um, and I think I think it's interesting to note because it shows how palpable the fear is around COVID nineteen, and uh, to an extent, kind of the concerns about the ability of our healthcare system to manage um, this this illness, uh, because. We also had a lot of messaging at the beginning of the pandemic that people need to stay home unless they're literally dying. But now we are in a place where people are literally dying because they are not going when they need to. Um, And so anecdotally, there's also been some reports about uh, patients because, again, of delaying, um, when they do present to the ER and to the ICU, they have much more advanced Um, symptoms and and a much worse prognosis as a result. So I wanted to share that because I think there's an opportunity for our listeners and whatever role they play in patient care to just kind of keep an eye on patients who they might have checkups with or telehealth or patients they know who are stroke survivors um, to encourage them to get care when they need it.
2: And I would add friends and family. I've had friends and family asking me about like, uh, like for instance, my son broke his wrist and my wife was like, do you think it's safe to go to the, you know, I'm like, yes, it is safe. We can go. <laughs> they have this, they have, they have policies in place at this point. Like early on, it was like, you could have been sitting in a COVID filled waiting room. Now they're pretty good about screening it out. Like, obviously don't go if you don't need to, but I I tell people like, if, if you need to go and, and people are starting to come back to the hospitals, at least it feels that way this week to me. But I I do think that this is probably a real phenomenon, but the interesting thing, Sarah, and I think you are going to maybe talk about this too, is that there, there is this hypercoagulable state that we think patients get with COVID-19 and there has been these vascular events that we think are happening, maybe even some young, young people that we wouldn't expect to have strokes. So it's kind of a, a bit of a disconnect there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the uh, I believe the New England Journal of Medicine just came out with a, a short case study about I believe five patients in New York City who were younger than age fifty, uh, in decent health and are good health I presume, um, and who presented to the ER with uh, with stroke symptoms, which is unusual for that um, population. So you know, and there's been we had an episode recently where we talked about um, you know thrombosis and some of the consequences. Of, of COVID that people are starting to see, um, apart from the respiratory function issues. So I, I think it remains to be seen, like, you know, exactly what happens, um, with, with this phenomenon among COVID patients. But I, I do think it's important to keep an eye on both the health of people that we would ordinarily be concerned about because then they might be delaying care and also the health of people who perhaps aren't on the radar because of their age or general health, um, but might actually be at an elevated risk because of this particular illness.
2: Emmy, what was your hot take for today?
4: Yeah, I wanted to talk about awake proning because I've we've all seen it on Twitter and I think more and more of us have been trying it. There was a paper that came out. It was just a sequential case series report, so no super strong data here, but it comes out of New York City in March and kind of the throes. the pandemic. And they're looking for two outcomes. Um, One was SpO2 change from having uh, oxygen um, pre-proning and then five minutes post-proning and looking at that change. And the secondary outcome was seeing if who got intubated within 24 hours. So our population was 50 people who came into the ER who had hypoxia, who was who were not improved with either non-rebreather or nasal cannula at about 5 liters per minute. And they were all able to prone on their own, and none of them imminently needed intubation. Although, per protocols, they, they all may have been intubated if they didn't try proning. So the median sat on arrival was around 80%. And then once put on oxygen, they rose to a median of 84%. So none of these still rose above um, the recommended 90%. And then once proned for five minutes, the median sat was 94%. So that's 10% increase. And then in the end, out of the 50 patients, 13 ended up needed needing intubation in the first 24 hours, including, and this is very high, in the first seven hours, sorry, in the first hour, seven people needed intubation. So it's a very high-risk population. It's still someone to be very vigilant on. And then an additional five needed intubation up to 72 hours. But overall, you know, a lot of patients were saved from intubation. That, That may have been the case in New York City in a surge time when there wasn't particularly a lot of PPE and not a lot of high flow nasal cannula BiPAP being used. So it's definitely an option that can be considered, and it's made its way into a few guidelines. So one is the Intensive Care Society, which is a, a UK based group, and the other is the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene has a respiratory support um, guidelines, including for resource-poor settings, that this is something that can be tried. And I, I think some of uh, you have tried as well. How has that gone? Yeah, Paul, did
2: you, did you use any of this when you were doing your tour of duty? Not
3: probably not as much as I should have. I will say that I've had anecdotally patients figure this out on their own, which is even more fascinating to me where they're like, I just, I could not breathe. I rolled over and I was doing much better. And it was the only way I could really be comfortable. So I had patients that was sort of self-prone and find out. So God knows (laughs) how tenuous they were. Glad things worked out. This is sort of figured out after the fact, but it's patients have kind of figured a lot of patients figure this out on their own, which I also think is is super interesting.
2: I know Cashlack's doing a ton of it uh, especially like night float or, you know, the time of day when the attending tends to be out of the hospital, the, you'll, I'll get a call from the resident or the next morning on rounds, the resident's like, Oh yeah, last night there's their sats tanked. We had them prone for a while. And, you know, by the time I get in the morning, they're back on like a liter or two. And may, I don't know if we prevented something bad from happening there. Like if it's, If, if you catch them early doing this, if it, if it reverses something, but it seems like a low risk intervention for people that can easily do it. And if the patient can tolerate it, I I don't think there's much downside in trying it. Right.
3: Especially since intubation seems like such a grim threshold to cross in this particular illness where once you're intubated, your chances of extubation are are not great. So I think anything that can save that off, especially like you say, that is so low risk. I mean, why, why not?
2: Rahul, you're, you're in the hospital too. Have you been seeing this?
0: So I think largely due to my patient population, I have had fewer chances to, you know, care for people who are kind of uh, young and and sort of like able to awake prone. I'm caring for a, a mostly older population. So I haven't had the chance to yet. Um, but I, I totally agree with the way that you guys are, are framing this. And, you know, it kind of brings up the question, like, how good does the evidence need to be in order for you to try something? Like, this is a low risk thing, you know, no side effects really for having someone lay on their belly. Um, e- even just anecdotal reports of this being successful would be enough to make me uh, want to try it. So this is in contrast to, you know, giving a, somebody a drug. This is something that's kind of easy and low risk. I, w- I would certainly try this out if I if I meet a patient that that could do that.
2: I, right. I put this a, a slightly higher stakes version of giving someone the alcohol swabs to <laughs> sniff sure. under their nose <laughs> yep. if they're nauseous.
3: <laughs> Can I just put out to the group, um, how, how do we feel about the happy hypoxemic thing or the happy hypoxics? Can I tell you all how much I hate that before I even let you answer? <laughs> Can I tell you that patients with COVID tend not to be a happy group? And then also it completely negates patient first language and you're actually defining them by a state, which I also find kind of awful and also... It's it just like why? Why aren't we using terms like I think I heard apathetic hypoxemia? I think I like, or maybe even a dyspneic hypoxemia. I think is even a better description. But the happy hypoxics, I just I hope that doesn't catch on because I just find it such sort of a I don't know. I just there it just rings kind of icky to me. I'm not sure how you guys feel about it.
2: This is why you're I I call you the moral compass of the show, Paul, because I <laughs> I, I have heard that term. I have seen patients who have the apathetic hypoxemia. And, uh, that some of the patients that I've tried the awake proning on were those patients just to see, you know, they're on four liters or five liters yesterday. They were on two. Let's, let's try, try this and see if we can uh, prevent this from getting worse. The, the other uh, on a totally, on slightly related note, have any of you guys seen this? Like there's this bag that they can put over people's head while they're getting CPAP. It looks terrifying, but apparently, apparently it works. And it's safe. But it looks looks like you're suffocating somebody with a bag.
3: It looks like the beginning of a mob hit in any number of (laughs) movies that I like. Yeah, you're right. It's not great. But if it helps, good.
2: Okay. I think we're probably going to need to wind down here. The, The last part of this, my hot take, which will be a quick one, I wanted people to look out for the Center for Infectious Disease and Research Policy, or CIDRAP. I don't know if that's what they call themselves. Pretty cool name. <laughs> These are some people with some major infectious disease and pandemic chops, and they are putting out weekly. I don't know if you call them reports or thoughts, but they're they they put out a part one and part two. I guess they're calling them viewpoints. That's what they're calling them, Paul viewpoints. And they're <laughs> the, the first viewpoint paper, which I think came out April thirtieth, and the second one was May sixth. Uh, May the first viewpoint paper talked about. Prior pandemics, there's been about eight of them or so in the past hundred years. They pointed out some interesting things. Out of the seven or eight pandemics in the past hundred years, only one of them was only one of them was affected by a vaccine. That was the two thousand nine two thousand ten H one N one flu, uh, the influenza A. The other ones all just kind of ran their course, and it, in general, unfortunately, took eighteen to twenty four months, and they. In the end of the paper, the, the part that I found most interesting was where they they show these, these waves, uh, these three scenarios of what the pandemic waves might look like. So scenario one is peaks and valleys, where we, we could say we've just been through a peak and we're heading towards a valley, but we might have several more peaks over 18 to 24 months that are almost as tall, and uh, eventually they will taper down. In the 20, uh, in the 1918 pandemic, there was a small wave in the spring followed by a very large wave in the fall. I really hope that's not what we're headed for, but that is one of the other possibilities. And then from there, it sort of tapers off with much smaller waves until 18 to 24 months. And then the final scenario was a slow burn where we've just been through the big wave and then there's no more discernible peaks. And let's all hope we're in that, but I don't know. Uh, because the second, the part two that they put out just, uh, just this past week had, they, they said that thinking that we can return to life as normal is probably a pipe dream. There's going to be some sacrifice in recurrent cases and, and more deaths if we do that. And they said they gave it four, four options for moving out of lockdown. It's, it's in the blue box on page 10 of their report. Uh, To to quickly summarize, they said, you know, we could stay locked down, but economically, that's probably not the best. And, uh, you know, we just have to hope for a miracle that it's just going to spin itself out, which probably won't happen. But the other options all have varying degrees of coming out of lockdown slowly and partially. In some scenarios, they're like, let's just send the young, healthy people out first and restart the economy and then slowly add back people. And then eventually they get down to let's come out quickly still try to protect the elderly and those with comorbidities, but we know there's going to be more cases and anything we choose is going to have a trade-off for economic benefit versus more illness. This was, I think it's interesting. I would highly recommend people take a look at it. The The second one also talks about crisis communication, which was, which was pretty cool too. Paul, did you have a chance to look at this? You were nodding.
3: No, yeah, no, I, I thought that I was intrigued by their they're actually commentary on crisis communication and actually critiqued how well some people did. They were fairly specific about it, which I was kind of I, I impressed by. And it, but it, it just makes, it's, I think what we all know intuitively, like the, the human cost is inversely proportional to the economic cost. Or maybe I'm saying that wrong, but as, as deaths go up, <laughs> maybe we can save the economy to some extent. So it, it depends on how much human sacrifice we're willing to make, I guess, for the sake of, of capital. We should probably cut that part yeah.
4: out. But. Well, do you know the the government put a price tag on human life, CDC and the, um, Department of Transportation. Do you guys know how much? No, tell me. $50,000? Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, that's like $12,000. Oh, higher. 10 million. 10 million, million. Per yeah. life. Was, I really undervalued myself. Yeah. I was, was thinking
2: <laughs> of the dialysis cost. Isn't that how they used to? Maybe I'm mixing, mixing terms.
4: I think that's per quality light year life gained. Okay. Um, so $10 million. Yeah. They basically figured that for four hundred extra dollars, this is how they actually did it, I think. For four hundred extra dollars, the average person would take a one in twenty-five thousand risk uh occupationally for death. So you calculate mm. that out, and that's what they value a life at. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Well you guys are all worth way more than that.
4: Yeah. I, I,
2: I think was
0: it's... genuinely thinking I'm not worth near
3: that much. Like they, <laughs> oh. they overvalued me.
1: <laughs> right.
2: Yeah, we're not talking bank accounts. We're just talking about like what my mom thinks I'm worth. Is that what (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what is the value of a rainbow? (laughs) 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 Yeah, if any of us had $10 million, I don't think we'd be doing a podcast at uh, nine o'clock at night (laughs) right now.
1: (laughs) Speak for yourself. (laughs) That's all I would do.
2: All right. I think this is a good place to wrap up. So uh, Paul, maybe we should should do some sort of an outro here. What do you think?
3: It, It feels like the type of thing that we'd normally do.
2: All right. Why don't you you bring us into it?
3: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. (laughs) Oh, I did not like that. Um, (laughs) I did. Yeah, get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
2: And uh, just send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to our producer for this episode. Sarah Phoebe Roberts and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chuman on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Matthew Frank Wado. And I've been Emmy Elizabeth Okamoto.
0: I've been Rahul Ganatra.
2: Sarah, Paul's got to go last. Yeah, I mean, I got to oh, say. She's big time in you, Paul. I oh, Lord,
1: no, I forgot. Sorry. I was... Uh... You're Listen, doing only, my life is only worth $12,000, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, this has been Sarah Phoebe Roberts.
3: And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for the excellent music that you are doubtless hearing right now, as well as the fantastic Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing this entire mess. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.
2: And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.